0: I appreciate very much Brother Tim's message this morning, the importance of waiting upon the Lord. And I think uh, that's a very timely message for this present day in which we're living. I'd like to take you this morning, be the Lord's will, to the 14th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. A couple of Sundays ago we spoke to you from the first chapter of Ezekiel. We looked at Ezekiel's call. God called him from being a priest to a prophet. We find that Ezekiel saw visions of God. And those visions were... Uh, the living creatures, and the wheel within the wheel, and the throne of God. In the end we are told all these visions was to bring forth uh, impact upon the mind and heart of Ezekiel the glory of God. And it fortified Ezekiel, it strengthened Ezekiel, it encouraged Ezekiel, because he had a mammoth task that lay before him. At this particular time Israel uh, is in a very deplorable state. They had been given over to idolatry, which they were inclined to do to begin with. But As we begin to look in the opening verses of Ezekiel chapter 14, we find that they came to the house where Ezekiel was at. Uh, Ezekiel was uh, was in his house, and the elders of the land would come to him to get a message. Outwardly, it looked like they were interested in the Word of God. Outwardly, it looked like they were very pious and very serious about what they were doing. But the truth of the matter is, we're told here that they had idols in their heart. Now, there's idols that can be seen. There's physical idols and literal idols out here, especially in biblical days when they would erect uh, altars to false gods and there would be images and they'd have things in high places and in the valleys, et cetera, et cetera. They would fall down under the green trees of that particular day. They had false gods in the name of Balaam and Astaroth, and things of this nature. But here the idols are not outward and physical, the idols are inward within the heart. Man can't see that, but God can. So whether the idol is outward or inward, an idol is not good. The Apostle John ends his writings in 1 John, which has five chapters, and the last thing he says in chapter 5, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now if it were not possible for us to practice idolatry, that certainly wouldn't be there. But it is. Some of the idols today, as you've heard me say in the past, is uh, recreation, sports, politics, Hollywood, your job, money, even yourself. You can become the biggest idol in your own life. So idols are just various and many, and God is not pleased with that. The first two of the Ten Commandments is uh, has to do with idolatry. The first is, I shall have no other gods before me. Number two, Thou shall make no graven image, anything in heaven and earth or beneath the earth. Uh, that's how the Ten Commandments start off. Those two commandments are just as much in play today as they were in the day that Moses delivered them to the nation of Israel. So they came more to be entertained. Apparently, Ezekiel was an outstanding speaker. They came more to be entertained of Ezekiel than they did to actually hear the word of God from the lips of Ezekiel. That's how this chapter starts off. They had idols in their hearts, which became an abomination and a stumbling block before them. Three different times we're told that. And the Lord says, I will answer that man myself. I will meet him face to face. I'll make him as a proverb. When we come to the 14th verse of Ezekiel chapter 14, and we find three men brought to our attention. We find Noah, we find Daniel, and we find Job three of the most outstanding men in Israel's history. And Ezekiel here, or the Lord through Ezekiel, is going to tell the Israelites, He says, Though I would send four judgments upon you. Those four judgments was famine, uh, the sword, the beast, and the pestilence. You can read these four judgments in various places in the Bible. Sometimes God would send a pestilence. Sometimes God would send the sword. That is, He would send the enemy to bring them into captivity. Sometimes uh, he would actually uh, uh, bring beasts into the picture. You remember in the life of Elisha? Remember there was about 42 children. Uh, if you look that word children up, you'll find they're probably in their adolescent stage. They came out and they mocked Elisha, and some she bears came out and destroyed every single one of them. A God's able to do that kind of thing. And so we had have a famine. That means the land that brings forth uh, the you know uh, crops for our use that we might have bread to eat, God would just simply hold the rain and there would be no crops. God bring forth a famine, and then God would bring forth the beast. Sometimes you know when God brought Israel into Canaan's land, the Lord told the Israelites He would not destroy those nations all at one time, but little by little. He said, if I'm destroy these nations all at one time, He says the land will become desolate, and the beast will increase. And become a great danger to you. So the Lord knew that. Uh, You know the Lord knows how to do things. That to begin with goes contrary to our way of thinking. When God brought Israel out of Egypt. He did not lead them by the nearest path. The straightest. uh, the, The nearest route. He did not take that route. Because the Philistines was there. And he says when they see the Philistines. Their hearts become fearful because of war. And they'll want to turn around and go back. So God took them on a detour. God knew what he was doing you see. And then uh, we have uh, the pestilence. Uh, that was always a very grievous judgment of God. So God had four judgments here, the famine, the beast, um, and, the, and the pestilence, and the sword. The sword, again, was when He brought forth the enemy upon them. But He says, now, about verses 21 and 22, He says, When I bring these four sword judgments upon Judah and Jerusalem, even if these three men, Noah... Daniel and Job were here. He says, they would be delivered because of their righteousness. He says, but I will not deliver the people. You remember in the 14th chapter of Genesis when God reveals unto Abraham he's going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember how Abraham interceded on behalf of that, those cities because he had a nephew the name of Lot down there. So he intercedes. And he asked the Lord if he found twenty righteous, would he deliver this, would he spare the city? And the Lord said yes. Here was see a situation where he would even spare the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah if he found twenty righteous people. But you're going to find where Abraham makes about five requests. He starts at 40. works his way all the way down to 10. The Lord said, If I find 10, I'll spare the city. Well, he didn't find ten but he was merciful he led Lot and his family out of there before he sent the fire and brimstone down from heaven and totally destroyed those cities and other cities that was in the plain. My point is, God would have spared those cities on behalf of some righteous people if he could have found them, he couldn't find them. But in the case here, it's in reverse. These are three of the most righteous men that you're ever gonna read about in the Bible. Three of the most well-known men in Israel's history. You got Noah, you got Daniel, And you got Job. He says, if these three men were here in the city of Jerusalem, in Judah, he says, they themselves would be spared and delivered because of their righteousness. He says, but the people would not be. That shows you the severity and the degree of the rebellion that this nation was experiencing or exercising toward God. In Ezekiel 3, you're going to find where God sends Ezekiel as a messenger to the people, and he refers several times in that chapter, he calls them a rebellious people. A rebellious people. They had rebelled. They disregarded God's law. They were steeped in idolatry. That was one of the things that uh, uh, was one of the main problems that Israel had, always given over to idolatry, mainly because they were influenced by the idolatrous nations that surrounded them. That's when God sent them into Canaan's land. He told them to begin with, he says, you're not to intermarry, you not to interact, and you destroy their images and their pictures, lest they lead you away from me as a true and living God, and to worship idols. So we come to this 14th chapter, and twice these men are referred to by name. But they're referred to in all four of these judgments. If I was to send a famine, if I was to send the beast, if I was to send the sword, if I was to send the pestilence, he says that these three men were here, I would spare them, I would deliver them for their lives and their righteousness, he says, but I would not deliver the people. A similar situation is over here in Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah was a little ahead of Ezekiel. They were somewhat contemporaries, but he was several years ahead of Ezekiel. And in Jeremiah 15 1 and 2, the Lord said, If Moses and Samuel stood before me, he says, I still would not look toward, and my mind would not be toward this people here. A very similar thing. Well, Moses and Samuel are two more. Here's five now of the most well-known, famous people in Israel's history for various reasons. The picture we have here in Jeremiah 15 of Moses and Samuel is the fact that Moses and Samuel were known for interceding on behalf of the nation of Israel. So there's power in intercession. There is I look in the book of James, chapter 5, and you know it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Notice this, singular. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Well, here's two, Moses and Samuel. Here's five altogether. When you throw in the three here in Ezekiel, chapter 14, Noah, Daniel, and Job. They were known for their intercession, especially Moses and Samuel. I read in the 32nd chapter of the book of Exodus where the Lord is so displeased with Israel, He speaks aloud to Moses says, I'm going to destroy this nation and I'll make you a great nation come out of you. Now some men, this shows a lot about the integrity and character of Moses. Some men would have perhaps liked that, received that say, okay, that's great. He's going to make a great nation out of me. You know what Moses did? He pleaded with God on behalf of Israel. He said, remember, O Lord God, your covenant, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, O Lord, that you brought them out of the land of Egypt by your power, your great signs, miracles, and wonders. And if you destroy them, the people are going to say, uh, going to speak evil of thee. Well, the Lord hearkened unto Moses and repented of the evil that he was going to do to that nation. Moses interceded, and through his intercession, Israel was delivered and spared. And I doubt many in the nation of Israel even knew anything about it. In Samuel's life, you come to 1 Samuel chapter 7, you're dealing with idolatry again. And you're going to find where uh, they were given over to serving gods like Astaroth and Balaam once again. And Samuel tells them to put their gods away from them and to serve the Lord God and Him only from their heart. And then the Philistines come up. And the people cry out to Samuel to intercede on their behalf concerning the Philistines. Samuel prays to God. God hears Samuel's prayer. He sends a great thunder which discomforts the Philistines, which means confusion, confused them and scattered them. And they went away and posed no threat at this particular time to Israel. We find where Samuel put up a rock here and called it Ebenezer, which means hitherto the Lord helped us. You come to the 12th chapter. And you'll find where Samuel tells the people, I will not sin in ceasing to pray for you. That's intercession. I will not cease to pray for you. It says, uh, but you need to serve the Lord God in the sincerity of your heart and turn not to the left hand or to the right and God will bless you. Samuel, uh, I'm sure in the flesh, there were times when Samuel probably thought there's no need to pray for this people. It doesn't do any good. But he says, I will not do that. He says, I would, be, I would sin if I ceased to pray for you. I'm not going to cease praying for you. He prayed for Israel and interceded on Israel's behalf. If Moses and Samuel, these two men, who were so influential in their intercessory prayers on behalf of the Israelites stood before God, God says, my mind would not be toward the people. Just would not be. It would not be effective, in other words. Here's two. In the book of Matthew 18 and 20, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. There's power in the prayer of an individual, and there's power in the prayer of groups here, two or three. Where two or three, not two or three thousand, not two or three hundred, not, you know, twenty or thirty, but where two or three, are gathered together in my name. He says, there am I in the midst. Let's take a look at these three men in particular, Noah, Daniel, and Job, in a little more detail. In one way, in some ways, they couldn't be any more different. Other ways, they have some very uh, common things about them. They lived in different periods of time. Noah lived about 2300 B.C., He lived on both sides of the flood. He's on this side of the flood. The Lord will deliver him and his family in that ark, and then he will live on this side of the flood, and the Lord will tell him to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Then we're gonna find where Job lived around 1500 and something BC, and most historians believe that he was a contemporary most likely with Abraham. And then Daniel lives about 530 B.C. So 530, 1500 or so, and 2300. They lived at different times, hundreds of years apart from one another. Take a look at their names. The word Noah means rest. It was given to him by his father Lamech. Now not much is known about Noah because he comes on the scene. He's a very young man. He's 500 years old. 500 years old. When he first mentioned. So he do not begin a work God's going to have him to do till he's 500 years of age. Now, people lived a lot longer in the antediluvial age, but it's an age before the flood, than they did, of course, on this side of the flood. All right, his name means rest. That points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Noah's a picture of Christ in many different ways. I come over to Matthew chapter 11, and the Lord Jesus Christ said, Come unto me, all you that labor, to have heavy late, and I'll give you what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The only real rest a child of God has is, is in this life here. Is not in the world, but it's in the Savior. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's when we wait upon the Lord, as Brother Tims told us this morning. Again, that waiting is not a stand-in-line type of wait. It's a wait where you actually labor and you're serving and ministering other people. Like the Lord said in Matthew 20, 28, he says, for I came not be to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give my life a ransom for many. That's why Christ came. Notice the first part. The second part, we emphasize strongly, give my life a ransom for many. And the word many, by the way, never means the entirety. It means the greater part of the whole. The greater part of the whole. He came to give his life a ransom for the greater part of the whole. All this family makes up the greater part of the whole of the human race. He said, I came not to be ministered unto, even though he was. Mary and Martha ministered to the Lord. But he says, I came to minister. He set forth the example, the perfect example of where you, you serve the Lord by serving his people, you serve his people by serving the Lord. So Noah's name means rest. The name of uh, Daniel's actually mentioned in the middle here. So we look at Daniel's name. Daniel's name means God is judge. Well, who in the world is he? But he that judgeth, and we notice in the book of Daniel, we studied Daniel's life, a book written by Daniel himself. Twelve chapters here uh, that Daniel's life was a judgment itself against the enemy that he was when he was in the ba- captivity of the Babylonian Empire. We'll see more about that later. And then the name of Job, who lived in the land of Uz, you're going to find where Job's name means persecuted, means hated or persecuted. And, of course, if you're familiar with the life of Job, the 42 chapters of Job, you'll see where uh, he suffered great persecution at the the hands of Satan. We have three enemies in this world. We have the enemy of the world, the enemy of Satan, and the enemy of human flesh, of human nature. I think you see this in these three men's lives. When you study the life of Noah, uh, there was universal wickedness in the world in 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 the lifetime of Noah. Here you have the battle against the world. And then in the life of Job, what do you have here? Well, the first thing that comes on the scene is Satan. His battle was against Satan and his powers. And then we look at the life of Daniel. Uh, You're going to see where Daniel had to battle his own human nature, I believe, because there's times when Daniel could have given in to it, but he did not. And so we have these three enemies, and we learn how to battle these enemies by studying Noah, studying Daniel, and studying Job. Let's look at the character of these three men for a moment. When I take a look at the book of Noah, and we look here in the sixth chapter in the book of Genesis, you're going to find where it starts off with saying, And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Have you ever found grace in the eyes of the Lord? I believe you have. I believe I found grace in the eyes of the Lord many, many times. But nobody finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, whom grace hadn't already found. You understand what I'm saying? Grace finds you in the beginning. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has to appear unto all men, teaching us that denying ungods and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God bringeth salvation. It doesn't offer salvation, it never has. It brings salvation to all men. It is all men that make up the family of Christ, all the elect. The grace of God brings salvation. And then in our experiences in life here, thank God, we, you know, we find grace in the eyes of the Lord from time to time, right? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's been used in a song, of course, we were familiar with. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then it says, Noah was a just man. He was living in, a very, in the midst of very unjust people, but he was a just man. Noah was perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Somebody says, it's hard to be a Christian in today's society. There is some difficulty, all right, about that. But I'm telling you, today's society probably pales in comparison to the society in Noah's day. Again, there was universal wickedness to the point that God has purposed to destroy this earth by a flood. He'll deliver Noah and his family, and that's it. The rest of mankind's all gonna perish in the flood God sent. Okay, so here we see the character of Noah. He walked with God. He was perfect his generation. He was a just man, and he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Does that remind you of somebody else that walked with the Lord? Mentioned a little earlier. A man by the name of Enoch, perhaps, who lived 365 years. Uh, Died a young man by comparison. Most everybody lived in that day 800, 900 years. And Enoch uh, died a young man at 365. Well, excuse me, he didn't die. He was taken by God. God took him. And the Bible says he walked with God 365 years. He walked with God. Noah walked with God. Noah had fellowship with God. Noah had companionship, friendship, and fellowship with God. And he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You start to look at the character of Noah, you can understand why. Take a look at the character of Job. Job, the book of Job opens up in chapter 1, verse 1. said, there was not a greater man in all the land of the east than Job was. That word great can carry with it many different ideas. Uh, but I think we can see why he's considered great when you start studying his character and his life. It said that Noah was a man that was perfect and upright. That means morally straight. That means he had high morals, okay? Uh, He was perfect and upright, and he eschewed evil. The word eschewed means to decline and to reject. Now, there was evil all around Job, but Job rejected it. Job declined it. Job pushed back from it. Shows his character. He eschewed evil. Evil was there. And you'll find uh, uh, Job had enemies in the land in which he lived at that particular time. Remember how uh, those uh, calamities started coming upon Job? The very first one had to do with what people call the Sabaeans. The Sabaeans came and they killed Job's servants and took Job's oxen and then the Babylonians came, and they slew Job's servants and took his camels. There were some wicked people who robbed and killed all around Job. Now you can live the kind of life God would have us live, even when there's a wickedness is all around us. Uh, you know, and certainly we're surrounded by evil and wickedness in the present day in which we live. It comes from us from all directions, from all sides. So we see the character of Noah. We see the character of Job. Take a look at the character of Daniel. These three men are holy men. That's one of the things they have in common. Yes, they lived in different generations, different time periods. Their names mean different things. Noah comes on the scene. He's 500 years old. Daniel comes on the scene probably as a teenager, about 15. And Job, he's he's already married. He's got 10 children. So I don't know how old he is. I do know this. As you come to the end of the book of Job, it says he died at 140, excuse me, uh, he lived 140 years after all these things you've been reading about in the 42 chapters. And historians estimate Job's age at least at 200. Anywhere from 200 to 240, most likely 200, 210 years of age. He died full of years. Job, uh, excuse me, but go back to Daniel here as a teenager. Daniel is taken out of Jerusalem and Judah. up into Babylon. He will never return. He'll live out the balance of his life in Babylon. But while he was in Babylon, he didn't use that as an excuse not to live the kind of life he ought to live. Daniel is a tremendous example for young people. You want a hero, you want an example to pattern your life after outside the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest, you'll not find any better than Daniel himself. Under trying circumstances. Daniel's around 15 years old probably, somewhere around there. And he's in captivity. And the first thing we find out about Daniel, he's extremely talented. He's skilled in science. He's skilled in knowledge. Uh, He's an exceptional person from that point of view. But he's more exceptional in ways even more important than that. He, along with his three companions, the Hebrew children, they're set aside, along with others and the king wants them to have the very best of the kingdom. Oh, they can have the king's meat and the king's wine, but Daniel knows that would violate the dietary laws, the laws that God gave Israel concerning that which was clean and unclean. So Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the king's meat and the king's wine. Daniel always gave me courage. Uh, When I graduated from college, I was determined right off the bat, I would not take a job that required weekend work. I just wasn't going to do it. I did not interview with anybody uh, or even seek a, 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 you know, a profession or a job or anything that would have me to, I'd have to work on Sunday. If I got to work on Sunday, I dismissed it. Wasn't going to do it. I was a member of the church then. I believe as a member of the church and my love for the Lord, I believe I had. It was my duty, responsibility, and joy to be in the house of God on the Lord's day. We're going to find here where Daniel's in a predicament. He's a captive. He's in the land of captivity. He's not in his homeland. He is a captive to the Babylonians. And the king's command says, here's the king's meat and here's the king's wine. And very best that the king had to offer. Well, Daniel purposed in his heart, he took it to the Lord. You know what the Lord did for Daniel? The same thing he'll do for you, the same thing he's done for me many times in my lifetime. God brought him into tender favor and mercy with the prince of the eunuchs, of somebody with authority and influence. He took his case to him, and the man told him, he says, well, if I'm to do that, I'd put my own life at risk. My own life would be at danger of violating the king's commandment. And Daniel says, well, just give us 10 days. That's all I'm asking you. Just give us 10 days. And let us have water to drink instead of wine. And let us have pots, which is the seeds of beans and peas, instead of the king's meat. In other words, instead of a T-bone steak, just give us seeds of peas and beans. Now, if it wasn't anything else to consider, I'd take the T-bone steak, wouldn't you? But you see, Daniel's not going to take the T-bone steak. So the Lord brings him into tender, into tender mercy and favor of the prince of the eunuch. And we're gonna find where he agrees to do it for 10 days. And after 10 days, the countenance of Daniel and the Hebrew children was more fair and more beautiful and more healthy looking than all the rest of them. When they had the best of the king's meat and wine and all they had was what I just told you, that was what they had for 10 days. And so the Lord blessed Daniel there as a young boy, as a teenage boy to take a stand for God. You see, Daniel was a man of character. Noah was a man of character. Job was a man of character. We've reached a point in society where character doesn't seem like it matters much anymore, especially in the field of politics. It used to. It doesn't seem like it does it anymore. I hope the day will come when character will come very, very important in making decisions. I can tell you this, character means a lot for, in the, when it comes to marriage, Uh, young boys and young girls, young men, young women, whatever, seeking to make for the rest of your life, character matters. Character matters. And we won't stray off into that. So we take a look at these three men here and begin to see why God may have placed them over here in Ezekiel chapter 14. These are outstanding men. These are holy men. These are men who serve God under trying circumstances. These are men who serve God when... Everybody around them was not serving God, and God blessed them. Let's take a look at their, uh, their faithfulness. In the book of Hebrews 11:7, 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God, moved with fear to preparing an ark to the saving of his house. God will tell Noah that he's going to destroy this earth. He's going to destroy all humanity, and the beast of the field, and the fowls of the air, etc., with the exception of him and his family. Except him and his family. You know, nothing's ever said about Noah's wife and children and their wives about their faithfulness. But they're going to be delivered because of the faithfulness of one man. Noah, the husband, Noah the father. He, he's the one who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he tells Noah to build an ark. There had never been an ark built before. Noah never seen an ark but God will give him the blueprint. God will give him the dimensions of this ark. He says, I'm going to send a rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Noah's never seen a raindrop in his life. Not one. But at the time of creation in Noah's day, the earth was watered with a mist that came up from the earth. Never seen it rain. So what does a Hebrew writer tell us about it? He says, by faith. Means he believed the word of God. By faith, Noah moved with fear. That is with reverential, reverential respect to what God's Word said. By faith, Noah moved with fear to the preparing of an ark to the saving of his house. The word house there doesn't mean building, it means family, it means people, those of the household. So this is, we see a a test here of Noah's faith in that regard. What um, What about Daniel? Well, all the way through Daniel's life is a picture of his faith, as far as that's concerned. We've already looked in chapter 1. Let's take a look in chapter 2 just for a moment. In chapter 2 in the book of Daniel, you're going to find where uh, the king has a dream. And when he wakes up, he forgets the dream, but the dream had bothered him. And he wants to know what the dream was and the interpretation of the dream. He can't remember the dream. Now, it's a blessing with me when I forget the dreams I have. I don't want to remember them. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. The Lord just takes it away from me. But this one bothered the king, and he calls his wise men together, and he says unto them, "He said, I had this dream. I want you to tell me the dream and the interpretation." They said, "Well, tell us the dream. We'll give you the interpretation." He said, "No. He said, you're just buying time. You're the wise men. You're the astrologers. You need to tell me what the dream was." He said, "There's not a man on this earth can tell you what dream you had in the interpretation of it. When they can't do anything." The king sends a decree out for them all to be slain. That includes Daniel and the Hebrew children. Daniel says to the prince of the eunuchs, why is he in such, the wrath of the king in such a hurry here? He says, give me some time and I will tell him what the dream is and I'll give him the interpretation of it. You know what Daniel did? He got the three Hebrew children together, Here's four. He got the Hebrew children together and they prayed to God for God's mercies in the situation right here. And God revealed to Daniel the dream and the interpretation of the dream. It's an extremely important dream, by the way, in terms of uh, human history, in terms of prophecy. You know, in Isaiah 46, 9, and I'm going to use this for a text, Lord willing, sometime in the near future, where he says, I am God, there's none like me, I'm God, and there's none else, declaring the end from the beginning. Here's something God's going to declare that hadn't yet happened, but it does happen, and it will happen. So I don't want to take too much about that right now. <laughs> but he sees this beast, and the head is of fine gold, and the breast and the arms is silver, and the belly and the thighs is brass, and the legs of iron, and the feet of the legs are a mixture of iron and clay. If you'll notice, this statue is very top-heavy. Very top-heavy. Gold weighs ten times more than clay. Silver weighs five times more than clay does. It's top heavy. Anything top heavy is liable to what? To topple over, right? Well, they're gonna topple. But that gold head represented King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. The silver, breast and arms, it represented the Medes and Persians, which would come afterwards. And then the thigh, you know, a brass, that's gonna represent Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. And the legs of iron and the feet part of iron and part of clay is going to represent the Roman Empire. And iron is a symbol of strength, but clay is a symbol of weakness. So he had that combination of the Roman Empire. But he saw something else. He saw a stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Now, stones that come out of the mountains didn't come out on their own, generally speaking. Men had to go in and cut them out. But here's a stone that's cut out of the mountains without hands, and it's simply giving you a picture. This is not of uh, human works here. This is by the power of God. And it says, This stone shall crush the feet of iron and clay, and everything's going to tumble down. He's talking about, and you go and continue reading that chapter, he's talking about the everlasting kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that was set up during the lifetime and ministry of our Savior something I've been enjoying in my lifetime, something you're enjoying today in the church. A church and the kingdom, for most parts, are interchangeable and synonymous. This kingdom is everlasting. It's totally different than the kingdoms that he previously mentions right here. So Daniel gives an interpretation of it. As a result of that, Daniel is elevated. Daniel is spared. The Hebrew children are spared. And even the, the sorcerers and the wise men, they're all spared. They're spared because God gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream. Now, you'll notice uh, in Daniel's uh, life, in Noah, and also in, uh, in Job's life, the wicked around Noah all perished, with the exception of him and his family. The wicked in Job's day. You know, when Job, Job was a righteous man, but did you know Job's children were slain. If you read in chapter 1, you'll find where he prayed for his children, yet his children perished. And in Daniel's situation, you're going to find where Daniel, even though he had an elevated position in the government of Babylon, did not have enough influence with the king to spare Judah and Jerusalem. His friends were spared. So we see the character, we see the faithfulness, we see the obedience, when Noah built the ark, we find this expression used several times. It says, and Noah did all that God commanded him. That's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Noah's will, God's will became Noah's will. God's will was him to build this ark. He built it exactly like God showed him. He built it with three stories, a window at the top, a door in the side, all the materials exactly out of gopher wood, just like God said. God's will became Noah's will. That points me to the Lord Jesus Christ. John 6, 38 and 39. The Lord said, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. All he hath given me, I shall lose nothing. You see, the Father's will became the Son's will. The Son's will and the Father's will was one and the same. Nor did all that God commanded him. Just like Jesus Christ did every single thing that pertained to the will of the Father, the Son of God left nothing out. He crossed all T's and dotted all I's. He did everything that the Father commanded him to do. Everything. Everything. But these three men, as righteous as they were, as holy as they were, as faithful as they were, as obedient as they were, if they were living in Judah and Jerusalem at that very time, we read about in Ezekiel 14, it wouldn't do any good. They'd be spared, but the people would not be spared. The people would not be. The power of intercessory prayer is extremely important. And it's extremely powerful. But the prayers of men, sometimes, how I want to put this? When you compare the prayers of men to the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're in a different category, aren't we? We're in a different category. Now, these three men could intercede. They intercede because of their righteousness, intercede because of their words, as Moses and Samuel can do. Wouldn't do any good. God's long-suffering come to an end. But God did promise them in his mercy that a remnant would be allowed to escape out of Judah and Jerusalem and come to Babylon. And Ezekiel says, he tells Ezekiel, you shall be comforted by them and their words. Aren't you glad that God down through history has always had a remnant? A remnant? I believe what other people have said, and I believe it as well, the only reason America is still standing is because there's a remnant of righteous people still on this earth, still in this country. You may not know where they're all at. I'm kind of like Elijah. Sometimes I say, well, where are they at, Lord? You know, but I know the Lord Jesus Christ has his church here in this world. And I believe with all my heart that we are part of that church. I believe we have the identity of that church. And the church, my friends, is a salty earth. That's the light of this world. And because of the church here in this world, I'm talking about God's church, the one Jesus Christ established and set up during his earthly life in ministry, is still here. And for the benefit of that church, the Lord is still long-suffering toward our nation. There's still some salt left, I believe, but I don't know how much. It may be getting scarce. <laughs> there's still a little light shining. I don't know how much. It may be getting a little dim. But there's still enough light, still enough salt. This nation we're living in here is still being preserved by God, but God's long suffering comes to an end. Long suffering means suffer long; it doesn't mean suffer eternally. God's suffering will come to an end at some point. These three men, as wonderful they were, as great as they were, and we could give other illustration examples, how powerful their intercessory prayers were in their lifetime on behalf of the Lord's family, wasn't going to be enough. In my closing remarks this morning, I want to remind you of somebody whose intercessory prayer was enough. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 34, a question is asked by the Apostle Paul. He says, Who is he that condemneth? He says, Christ that died, yea, that's risen again, who's on the right hand of God, make an intercession for us. I can assure you that intercession is sufficient. Those are three things. That's why nobody can condemn, be condemned that the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for. Nobody can, can issue out a condemnation against you or you or you or me if I'm embracing that life, uh, uh, work of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ died for me, died for you and you and you. And he rose again for all of us. And he's on the right hand of God making intercession for all of us. Hebrews 7 25. It says, And God is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Aren't you glad that intercessory prayer that Jesus prayed, prayed, and does pray? Go to John chapter 17. Here's the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts his prophecy, Lord, I thank you. You know, he lifted he his eyes toward heaven and he said, Father, the hour come. Thou should glorify thy Son. He might also glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh and he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. How many is going to get eternal life? As many as the Father gave to the Son. Not one more, not one less. And this is life eternal. They might know thee the only true and living God in thy Son, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's what eternal life is. And God gives eternal life to every heir of promise, every object of God's love, every heir of the covenant, his everlasting covenant, brother, that was established for the foundation of the world. I believe that intercessory prayer is 100% effectual. Aren't you happy about that? Here is five men that we brought to your attention. Moses, Samuel, Noah, Daniel, Job. See how the Lord blessed them. When Job, at the end of Job chapter 42, the Bible says that God blessed Job and restored in him double everything he lost. His children, he had ten, seven boys and three girls. He gave him back seven boys and three girls. Somebody says, Where's the double there? Well, the first ten are already gone to glory. He still got them. <laughs> He still got them. God blessed him, right? And just read the book of Daniel and you'll see how amazingly uh, Daniel was blessed. He was blessed in that den of lions, wasn't he? I'd say so. He spent a night in the den of lions. Not Not a lion's den. That could be empty. A den of lions is not empty. It's got lions in it. And when the king inquired about him the next morning, he said, They all forever, O king. God has sent his angel this last night and shut the mouth of the lions, and I'm doing just fine. I'm doing just fine. That's amazing, isn't it? How can you be doing fine after spending the night in a den of lions? Lions all around you, ferocious lions. And, but God sent an angel and just calmed them all down. Daniel used uh, uh, the neck of them lions, I believe, for a pillow. I just really believe that. <laughs> I really believe he just put his arms around the neck of the old lion and says, About time to go to sleep, baby. And they, he just went to sleep. He woke up the next morning. Everything is fine. Okay. You know, things are bad when Job and Noah and Daniel's life will not have made a difference for the people of that day. But thank God throughout the history of time. There's been a Moses and a Samuel and a Noah and a Daniel and a Job. And I believe we still have people like that today. They may not be, ever have their names pinned down in a book called the Bible, but I believe they're here. And I believe I've been able to meet a few of them in my lifetime. Oh, I never built, I've never met one that built the ark. <laughs> I've, never, I've never met one that spent a night in a den of lions, have you? And i never met one who suffered like Job suffered. These are given to us for examples, my friends, of what God will do for us in times of trials and tribulations and the times we're present living in in this world here. God bless you and thank you so much again for your wonderful attention and your prayers this morning. Uh, we're we'll saying two.